The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 45. Jack's Banjaxed. With a member of the film community to which he had pinned his hopes languishing in the town's jail and another in the morgue, Mayor Bowden was obliged to play his ace. As he had clearly hoped, this knocked both the news of Billy Rouge's mysterious arrest and of poor Billy Ritchie's demise into a cocked hat, or more accurately, into a small corner of the front pages of the Tribune Union and the Metropolis. Charlie Chaplin coming to Jacksonville! The headlines screamed from every newsstand and from the lungs of every newsboy in town, and the buzz was palpable. In the bars, on the streets, in the stores, and even in the churches that were squarely backing Martin's vision of Gomorrah tomorrow, a good slogan, we had to admit, it was all anyone in the town was talking about. J.E.T. Bowden's slogan, by the way, was an odd play on his own initials. Just easy times, boys! A nice sentiment, true enough, but not one especially appealing to those hard-working citizens who thought all movie men were dangerous slackers. Hoping to build on this coup and ram home his advantage, Mayor Bowden mobilised the movie community and held a mammoth, glittering reception at the Mason Hotel, hosted by George M. Cohan, who was making pictures for Artcraft at that time. Music, naturally, was provided by the half-ton of Harmony himself, Babe Hardy and his 20th Century Four, and the evening began with a tremendous and optimistic swing. Surely Bowden was going to win. The movies were Jacksonville, and Jacksonville was the movies. Over at the Vim tables, however, the mood was sombre. I sat in a corner nursing a bottle of bourbon. Billy Ritchie's violent end had thrown me into a black depression, and only copious amounts of alcohol eased the pain. It was an accident, of course, an act of God and nature, but I couldn't help considering that if poor Billy hadn't been driven by his desire to outdo Chaplin and lay claim to the success he believed should have been his all along, then he would still be with us, possibly sitting opposite me right at that moment. I watched Ray Godfrey dancing with Bert, twirling lithely around the little jockey. I'd been a little distant with the poor kid lately, thinking about Tilly, wondering whether she had indeed moved on, as she herself had put it in the letter I now knew by heart. I looked at the photograph of Tilly and Wallace again, as I had several times a day since receiving it. Something struck me as odd suddenly about the shape of it. It was almost square, but not quite, and certainly not the rectangular portrait that would have been common. Then the background, particularly behind the little boy. It was patterned lower down, but plainer up above with some unexplained dots. I puzzled away at it, moving close to a candle to squint at it more closely. Then I saw it, the answer that made sense of it. The pattern was a tartan, specifically a kilt. The plain area with the dots, a tunic with shiny buttons. This was McTavish, surely, standing proudly behind them, and the odd shape was because of the necessity of trimming off the man's head and feet in the hope that I would not notice him. Because this was not a happy snap of a single mother and her child. It was a little family group. I barely had time to digest the import of this before Billy Rouge turned up at the mason, walking sticks clicking on the hard dance floor, having finally been released without charge. All the Vimites mobbed him, pressing for details of his sensational incarceration. All a big misunderstanding, he said breezily. Case of mistaken identity, that's all. Took a while to convince them, mind, seeing as how the finger that was pointed at me belongs to someone famous. But when the incident happened, I was nowhere near it, and in the end they had to let me go. "'Who on earth were you supposed to have killed?' Babe asked. "'Would you believe?' "'Charlie Chaplin,' Rouge said, exhibiting the best timing I'd seen in the year I'd known him. 
The Vimites gasped as one. I felt as though my insides were trying to escape through my mouth. Charlie Chaplin's not dead, is he? Bert asked. No, no. It wasn't really Charlie Chaplin, Billy replied, trying to quell the incredulity a little. It was a fellow who made his living pretending to be Charlie Chaplin, and somebody shot him in an honest-to-goodness gunfight over in Dodge City. Can you believe that? I could. Well, turns out this was last autumn, and Lou showed him that I was here, making poke and jabs flicks with Walt and Bobby. No way I could have been in Kansas perforating some Chaplin alikey, and so they had to spring me. Congratulations, Babe cried. The mayor will be relieved that there isn't a killer in town anyway, especially one who's gunning for his secret weapon. Everyone cheered and patted Billy on the back, and when festivities resumed shortly afterwards, he took me to one side with a firm grip on my elbow. "'You and me need to have a word,' he said. "'What about?' I asked. "'I can tell by the way you went white when I mentioned Dodge City that you know fine well what about,' he said in a low voice, moving in closer. "'I'm right, aren't I?' "'I don't know what you mean,' I said. "'Well, let me tell you what I was told by the gents from the Bureau of Investigation,' Billy said. They told me it was Charlie Chaplin himself that contacted them, and told them the man they were after was working in Jacksonville, playing the part of Runt in the Thursday Vim. Um, and so if I was you, son, which would make a change, wouldn't it, seeing as you've spent most of this year being me, I'd make myself scarce. You didn't tell them? Who, the Bureau guys? Nah. Why should I do their job for them? Besides, I wouldn't want it to get out that the feller on screen wasn't really Billy Rouge, when Billy Rouge is getting all the credit and the money besides... My legs are pretty much fixed now, so I'll just take over again. Get me? I do, I said. Thanks for that, anyway, Billy. My pleasure, son, Rouge replied. Oh, one more thing, he said. What the hell happened in Dodge? An accident, a stupid accident, I said. Ha, huh, Rouge grunted when it became clear that that was all I was going to say on the matter. He wandered off then, a self-satisfied smirk on his ugly mug, and left me to my whirling thoughts and my bourbon bottle. Chaplin. Charlie bloody Chaplin. A whole continent between us, and a gulf as wide in circumstances, and yet he still couldn't resist the opportunity to reach out and ruin my life. Clearly Sid had recognised me, even though he hadn't deigned to talk to me at all. And of course Charlie would have heard sooner or later about the Dodge City shootout and the demise of Edgar Hurley, even though there were shock reports of Chaplin's death practically every other week, thanks to a sudden unexpected disease, or a stunt gone wrong, or a cuckolded husband, that particular one would surely have caught his eye, and he'd have known that I was the man wanted for it. He could have left it alone, couldn't he? But no, he decided to set the Bureau of Investigation on my trail. I could hardly believe he wanted me to be caught, because it would be a hanging if I couldn't explain myself, but I thought I knew why he'd done it. It was the Vims, the Thursday Vims. He and Sid would have sought them out and sat through a couple, maybe more, and I could just imagine his stone face, his folded arms, the silent seething as he saw me, his greatest rival, getting laugh after laugh, and he couldn't stand it, he couldn't bear it, and so he'd struck out at me, struck out again trying to bring me down. Well, he hadn't managed to get me incarcerated through the merest good fortune, but he had brought an end to my Floridian idyll, that was for sure. I was going to have to leave quick smart and tell no one where I was going. Not before I finished the bottle, though. Just then, the mayor himself climbed up onto the stage, mopping his red face with a big white handkerchief. "'Thank you, friends, for your most kind support,' he cried. "'Surely we have a fair wind at our backs, the election will be ours, and Jacksonville will continue to go from strength to strength.' As the packed room cheered to the rafters, a flustered fellow, 
one of the mayor's personal staff, rushed in, brandishing an early edition of the next morning's Florida Tribune Union. He hopped up onto the stage and showed it to Bowden, who reeled as though he had been punched squarely in the heart. Then, helped by his underling, he left the stage, and shortly the building, without another word. The newspaper ended up in Babe's hands as he had been standing on stage behind the stricken mare, and he frowned as he glanced over the lead story. From all parts of the gathering, voices began to call out. "'What does it say, Babe? Tell us!' Babe stepped forward, a solemn expression on his usually jolly features. "'It reads as follows,' he said, and instantly there was a hush. "'Jacksonville has been abuzz with excitement over the prospect of Charlie Chaplin, "'the most popular and well-rewarded comedian on the face of the earth, "'coming to town to make pictures here, as faithfully promised by Mayor J.E.T. Bowden. "'However,' at this point the audience began to shift uncomfortably, "Uh "'uh-oh. "'Yesterday it was announced that Mr. Chaplin was terminating his association with mutual pictures, "'entering into a new agreement with First National that will net him a million dollars for just eight new pictures.' This figure drew gasps from all parts, which he will make in a brand new purpose-built facility to be constructed in Hollywood, California. Groans. No wonder Bowden had been so shocked. His ace in the hole had turned out to be a joker. Babe read on. The people of Jacksonville have been sold a pup. Ha! Bert Tracy grunted. Well, that's Jack's banjaxed. He was right, too. The voters had been promised Charlie Chaplin on their doorstep, only to have this inexplicably desirable treat snatched from their eager grasp, and they took their bitter disappointment out on the mare. Bowden had not delivered, and he was ousted. Martin came in, and film production companies didn't wait for him to make their lives intolerable. They just upped sticks and left, some for New Jersey and New York, but most headed for the Hollywood Hills. Within a short month, all film production in the city had ceased, never to start again, and Jacksonville would never again rival Hollywood's supremacy. My Jacksonville dream was over, and so, it seemed, was everyone else's. Incredibly, like so many of my dreams, it had been trampled by the tramp. Chaplin had done for me once again. Chapter 46. The Four-Minute Man. Six months later, America was a very different place. President Wilson had finally taken the country into the war, the final straw being a telegram apparently sent by the German Foreign Secretary, one Herr Zimmermann, to their ambassador in Mexico proposing a military alliance. He was authorised to offer the Mexicans the prospect of regaining Texas, Arizona and New Mexico if all went according to plan. So, war came to pass in April of 1917, and not every American was thrilled. Plenty of expatriate Irishmen, for example, regarded themselves as already at war with England, or, strictly speaking, already dodging a war with England by staying in the States and moaning about it, and insisted America was coming in on the wrong side. There was, though, a great swell of patriotic fervour at large. Recruitment posters popped up everywhere, on every hoarding and free wall space, with Uncle Sam pointing out at passers-by to demand that they join him in his shiny blue jacket and star-spangled top hat. In order to prevent food shortages, citizens were encouraged to participate in meatless Mondays and then weekless Wednesdays, 
and to turn their backyards into victory gardens. The president even had sheep grazing on the White House lawns to show his support. And everywhere you turned, there were people pressuring you to enlist or to buy liberty bonds to pay for the war effort. Mr George M. Cohan wrote Over There, which became an overnight smash. He, like so many others, was no longer making movies down in Florida. I wondered what Babe was up to, and Ray, and the others, and whether I would ever see any of them again. I felt bad about leaving without breaking properly with Ray, but I could hardly take her with me, could I, since I was on the run again. I wondered, too, what Tilly and Wallace were doing, although I tried not to. Was this love at Highlander making my boy into a little Scotsman? He had the name for it, at least. I'd written a reply to Tilly before I left Jacksonville, and had gone through a good number of drafts of it, I can tell you. It seemed too odd to give her my blessing to move on with her life, since I was essentially reading between the lines and between Wallace's ear and her shoulder in that little photograph, so I simply assured her that I had no intention of attempting another crossing and left it to her to take that as she would. What else could I do? Until the war ended, and when would that be? A year? Ten years? Twenty? Whenever, it would likely be too late for us. Maybe it was already. And now that I was on the move once more, I could hardly even say we were still in touch. So I headed north with my savings, figuring that if I was going to keep a low profile, then the biggest city on the continent was probably a good place to do it. I was there when the announcement was made that President Wilson had finally been pushed to breaking point, standing stunned amongst a mass of New Yorkers as the newsboys hollered the headlines, trying to work out what this meant for me. One consequence, coming fairly hot on the heels of the war announcement, was that it was once again possible to see me performing in the movie houses, many of which were formerly vaudeville theatres I'd played in back in the days of my first Carno American tour. I wasn't appearing in the flickers, though. I became a four-minute man. We were volunteer speakers, working for the government, and we were sent out all over the country to deliver short, patriotic speeches. The maximum time you were given to make an impact was four minutes, hence the job title, and this was because it took precisely four minutes for the projectionist to change the reel. So, a picture would end, and up on the screen would appear a slide giving my name, actually not my name, the name of my alias, Arthur Smith, and alerting the audience that I was to speak four minutes on a subject of national importance under authority of George Creel, chairman of the Committee on Public Information. It wasn't exactly paid employment, which was proving elusive, but it was possible to squeeze some small expenses out of them and two meals a day, which, with the merest hint of irony, were usually Liberty Meat, former hamburgers, with a side order of Liberty Cabbage, erstwhile sauerkraut. The best perk of all, however, was that if anyone pestered me to register for the draft myself, I could whip out my identity card and say, I'm a four-minute man, and that would be the end of that. In effect, I was hiding in plain sight, doing my bit. A man called Herbert Powell ran the programme in New York. He was a balding, middle-aged bureaucrat who looked like he'd never laughed in his entire life. He would give us pep talks and choose what subjects we would speak about, which could be Universal Selective Service, the draft, the Liberty Bonds Drive, or Loyalty Bonds as we were told to call them, the Red Cross, German Spies Are Everywhere, Why We Are Fighting, or The Meaning of America, available in seven languages. They liked it that I had an English accent and would give me speeches that were all about America coming to the aid of her oldest ally in times of need, that sort of thing. I got wheeled out in front of a crowd several times a day because, frankly, I was good at it. Not all the four-minute men were used to public speaking, as I was. Not all of them already knew to aim for the back row of the stalls because that meant you would hit everyone in between. 
Not all of them could quell murmuring and trips to the lavatory with a look, as I could, or could command the attention of the whole room for even half a minute, let alone four. However, I was faced with a constant dilemma. I had a serious message to deliver, but I was an old vaudevillian faced with an audience of 450 or so, all of whom had just been laughing and were ready to do so again. I wanted to do it. I wanted to tickle their ribs or tap them on the funny bone. So one night, instead of the rousing inanity that had been written for me, I said, Let's kick the Kaiser in the keister! It got a nice laugh and meant I ended with the house cheering and was able to come off stage feeling just a tiny bit of the adrenaline rush that had once been my daily diet. It also, however, got me a telling off from the supervisor. Just deliver your message without the crowd pleasing, thank you, Mr Smith, Powell said. But it got a laugh, I said. You've got four minutes to get through to them, Powell said. If they spend ten seconds laughing and cheering, then you only have three minutes and fifty seconds to persuade them to contribute. War is a serious business. I know, but... I said. And if you lose ten seconds every time you speak, then every twenty-four speeches you make, you lose a whole speech. You only deliver twenty-three. That doesn't make sense, I insisted. If they laugh, it means they're listening. If they laugh, it means they are dismissing you as frivolous and less likely to make the serious decisions that you are urging upon them, less likely to register for the draft, less likely to buy a bond, less likely to question the motives of their German neighbours. So cut out the funnies, Mr Smith. But, and in any case, isn't keister a German word? Well, strictly speaking, keisters don't come any more German than the Kaiser's own, I said, but I had to give way on the jokes in the end. Like many, I had high hopes that America's arrival might speed the end of the conflict, but even after the Doughboys landed, the news from France was depressingly discouraging. One evening, I was at a movie house on 47th Street, waiting for my four minutes and looking sideways and upwards at the screen where the flicker was playing. I caught the title card and saw that it was by a company called King B out of Bayonne, New Jersey, but missed the name of the star. A couple of minutes in, though, it was clearly Charlie Chaplin I was peering up the nose of, and I couldn't make head nor tail of this. Charlie had signed a huge deal with First National, and his filmmaking was getting ever slower as he demanded more and more time to polish his jewels, so there was no way he'd be knocking out a quick and nasty bit of slapstick such as this. Perhaps it was my Chaplin Oyer returning. I squinted up at the screen, which was distorted by my proximity, and a heavy entered the action. Surely, surely it was Babe! Babe Hardy working with Chaplin. Now that would be a real kick in the teeth. I had to know, and so I pushed through the door that led to the side aisle of the auditorium and hurried round to get a front-on view. Now I could see properly the big man was definitely Babe, and he was just getting his backside kicked by the little tramp. I started to feel acid in my stomach at the thought of my friend having been drawn into the orbit of my bitter enemy, a man who would surely destroy him once he realised how funny he was. What could I do? How could I warn him? The tramp on screen then executed a manoeuvre to escape his rival's clutches and pushed him over on his behind. Babe sold this completely, as he always did, with surprising grace and athleticism. But I peered again at the little man. There was something off. There was an element missing, a fluency, a balance. Was Charlie having an off day? Was he already thrown off by being upstaged by Hardy? The flicker reached its climax, and I stared at the end cards hungry for information. There was no mention of Chaplin, none at all. The star was called Billy West, and his sidekick was indeed my Jacksonville playmate. Billy West? I didn't know the name, but clearly he was a Chaplin copyist, and a good one too. The crowd had enjoyed the comedy and were in a good mood, and it was almost as if they either didn't notice or didn't particularly care that it wasn't the real Chaplin they'd just been watching, which was funny, wasn't it?
I started to laugh, standing there in the aisle, not at Billy West's acting, meticulous though that had been, but at the fact that Billy West existed. I had seen Chaplin imitators on stage, of course, not least Stan and Ed Hurley. I felt a lurch in my guts at the memory. And I had even impersonated him myself, more times than I care to recall, just to get a chicken leg. But an impersonator on screen, why, that was hilarious, wasn't it? Surely that devalued his whole currency. Why would First National, or anyone else for that matter, pay him a million dollars for eight films if they could get Billy West to make an identical flicker every week for peanuts? I began to think I saw an ending on the horizon for Mr Charlie Chaplin, with good old Babe helping to bring him down, and actually began to rub my hands together with glee. Suddenly I realised that the crowd were beginning to murmur and shift in their seats. I looked up at the screen, and there was a slide showing. It read... This is to certify that Arthur Smith will speak for four minutes on a matter of... I didn't read any more. I was already running down the aisle, shouting at the top of my voice. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, the message I have for you is of such importance... Here I leapt up dramatically onto the stage... That I have been delivering it in every movie house in town. Phew! Nearly didn't make it. I paused, doubling over to get my breath after that sudden burst of activity, my hands on my knees... And slowly, but building like a wave, the audience began to clap, until a tidal wave of applause broke over my head at my tireless efforts on behalf of the country, and I had to raise my hands to calm them down. Afterwards, Herbert Powell said, That's good. I like that opening. Very mysterious. Very urgent. Cost you some time, but got them on your side. Keep that, and lose the laughs. Got me, Smith? Later that evening, I was sitting by myself in Smoky Joe's on 43rd Street, minding my own business and two fingers of bourbon. Seeing Babe up on the screen had brought home to me how very lonely I was. I took out the little trimmed photograph of Tilly and our son in his sailor suit and gazed at it for the umpteenth time. She might have moved on, but could I honestly say that I had, in my heart? I missed Babe and the guys at Vim too, but the Jacksonville movie boom was over, strangled by the manipulative intervention of Charlie Chaplin. I missed my old Carno mates. Stan. Whatever was Stan up to, I wondered. Still pretending to be Charlie Chaplin? Wren, what was she doing? Poor girl, left to fend for herself in the Wild West, her husband lying in the dirt, dressed as Charlie Chaplin. Mike Asher. Was he still running a burlesque house in Seattle, a whole continent away? And Freddie. Poor Freddy, cut down in the Dardanelles two years ago now. I felt a lump in my throat and feared that I might break down in tears right there in the bar. Suddenly I heard a man's voice behind me sing out, Arthur Dando! Before I could stop myself, I'd turned round like a fool to see who it was. And of course it wasn't some mate from the old country or someone who owed me money or even a drink. It was a smug-looking slicker in a sharp, dark suit, with another, identically attired, sidekick just behind, both of them smirking away like they'd pulled off the greatest stroke of their lives. This was not good. This was not good at all. Chapter 47. The Room. Summer of 1917. Somewhere in America. And so, here we are, John said, sitting back in his chair. Here we are indeed, I replied. Now are you going to tell me what the devil you want? John regarded me silently, thinking, which unnerved me more than somewhat. I don't really know what else I can tell you, I said. He looked at his colleague, who gave a little shrug as if to say, up to you. You seem to have amassed quite a store of resentment against our friend, Mr Chaplin, John mused, 
Your friend, maybe, I muttered. Although perhaps we should put your assertion that he deliberately destroyed the entire Jacksonville film industry down to your personal, shall we say, Chaplinoyer. I didn't say anything to this. He already thought I was crackers without me adding fuel to that particular fire. So I wonder what you would say if I was to offer you the opportunity to, shall we say, even the score. I would say, tell me more. You're aware that our primary objective, as yours was as a four-minute man, is to encourage as many men as possible, indeed all the able-bodied male population aged between 21 and 31, to register for the draft, make themselves available for service, even enlist of their own volition. Was? I asked. I'm sorry? You said that my objective was when I was a four-minute man. Oh, yes, that's over now. Either you work for us or I ship you back to England. I stared levelly back at him, but my heart was pumping fast. John, meanwhile, shrugged nonchalantly as though all this was a mere detail to him. Or you could stay here and take your chances with the Bureau of Investigation, who are minded to hang you. The choice is yours. That's nice, I said. This is the land of the free, after all. So it is. So it is indeed. I still don't see what I can do for you, I said. John steepled his fingers and rested his bottom lip on top of them momentarily. We have concluded that the single most inspirational occurrence that we could possibly engineer would be an announcement that Mr. Charlie Chaplin had registered for the draft. The most popular man in the country, John's sidekick cut in. I know, I said coolly. I've seen him. I know that you are aware of the clause in his mutual contract which forbade him from returning to England for the duration of hostilities for fear of being mobilised in the armed forces. I nodded. And perhaps you are also aware that, the, that this did not go down particularly well in your homeland, particularly in some leading newspapers, such as the Daily Mail. In short, their proprietor, Lord Northcliffe, has waged a lengthy c campaign to oblige Chaplin to do his duty. Really? I smiled. Now, Lord Northcliffe is a powerful man, as you know. His editorials did much to bring down the government of Herbert Asquith, and he was most influential in the rise of P Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Oh, I said. And yet, his scathing editorials in his many organs, which include not only your Daily Mail, but also The Times, The Daily Mirror, and The Weekly Dispatch, have b barely made a dent in Chaplin's determination to shirk his duty. John reached into his satchel and pulled out a bunch of clippings held together by a paper clip, and he read the first example with his lip curling in obvious contempt. Charles Chaplin, although slightly built, is very firm on his feet, as evidenced by his screen acrobatics. The way he is able to mount stairs suggests the alacrity with which he would go over the top when the whistle blew. He's certainly very fit, I said. John flipped to another item and read some of it out loud. During the 34 months of the war, it is estimated that Charlie has earned well over £125,000. While good men are dying, John's sidekick was moved to chip in, the United States Postal Service has delivered many hundreds of white feathers to your erstwhile colleague, which he uses to stuff the pillows he relaxes his treacherous head upon. Yes, thank you. Could I just, without interruption? Sorry. Did you know, Mr. Dando, that during the Civil War, 50 years ago, rich men were able to avoid being drafted by hiring other men to take their place in the battle lines? I did not know that, I said. Well, we as a people have moved on from those days. The rich and famous can no longer hide from their responsibilities as members of the society. They p plunder as they p please. Hear, hear, the strong silent type muttered. 
and since the introduction of the Selective Service Act, all able-bodied men are required to register, including foreign nationals. I would have, I said, but for the fact that I was unable to use my own name because of, well, you know, and so did not have any papers. John waved this irrelevance away. Now, Chaplin is aged between 21 and 31, is he not? He is, I said. And he is unmarried, without dependents, as far as I know. Then he is categorised as Class 1. Right. As you yourself would be. Unless you were convicted of the murder of Edgar Hurley, of course, then you'd be Class 5. John's sidekick contributed helpfully, with a not altogether pleasant smirk. Or dead, he added, with an illustratory pantomime of hanging himself, tongue lolling, eyes rolling. You... Must have asked him about this, I said, trying to steer the conversation back to Charlie. Or oh, someone must. What does he say? Well, after a long delay, he has finally produced a doctor's letter claiming a medical exemption because he is underweight. Underweight? That's right. Is there a weight restriction? I mean, I know Yank soldiers are called doughboys, but does that mean you're only looking for plump chaps? No, it does not. And even if he is underweight, can't you just... Stuff him full of liberty meat until he makes the mark. If he were to register for the draft and be drawn to serve, then the army would undertake to work on improving his physical condition, as it would with every new recruit. I was still baffled. So what? How do I come into this? We strongly suspect that this doctor's letter is bogus. Aha! And we want you to go to Los Angeles, insinuate yourself into Chaplin's confidence as an old friend, and find us the evidence we need. I exhaled slowly. I could certainly present myself at Chaplin's door, but as an old friend, I wondered how far I would get. I could hardly say no, though, could I, when the alternatives were jail and the gallows or the machine guns of the Hun. What is it you want to achieve, exactly? I said, trying to buy a little thinking time. Once we have the evidence in our hands, we will make it clear to Mr. Chaplin that we expect him to step forward and register like every other patriotic citizen. And if he will not? We will expose him as the slacker he is in every newspaper in the land. We will make a stink that Lord Northcliffe himself will smell all the way over in London. We will finish him as a popular entertainer. John leaned forward eagerly, and his face took on a hungry, wolfish aspect. He even seemed temporarily to have mastered his stutter. It struck me just then how very much he wanted this, wanted to catch Chaplin out, wanted to bring him down. And I was certainly all for that, naturally, but it suddenly occurred to me that for once I had a little leverage. You want me to go all the way to California and dig up dirt on Charlie? That's right. But in the meantime I'll still be wanted, I said dubiously. John shook his head impatiently. No, no, I've taken care of that already. The Bureau of Investigation has been notified that you are a person of special interest to my office, and there is no longer a warrant out for your arrest. He could have mentioned that earlier, I thought, fingering my collar with relief. I nodded slowly, holding the pause for dramatic effect, like the old trooper I was. Well, in that case, I said then, I'm your man. <laughs>